Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 153 of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this week's episode for the week ending May 10, 2019, we take a look at multiple stories. In this episode, we have several fascinating stories. They include what is a ghost bribe and why is it critical? The six hats of an AML compliance professional. We note two significant departures from the Department of Justice, lawyers going back into private practice. What's the impact of working with monitors? The FBI is skewered at the start of another FCPA sting case uh, trial in Boston. Trump Tower in Moscow, what's the story? Italy enacts a law to provide credit for remediation during corruption investigations, including monitorships. We look at an assassination attempt of a chief audit executive in South Africa. And who owns a bribe and why does it matter? We review a three-part podcast series that I put on this week, looking at leadership lessons from Harry Truman, Douglas MacArthur, and Truman's firing of MacArthur. We discuss the Everything Compliance semi-annual wrap-up of the Trump administration and compliance first half of 2019, and some upcoming events that I'm going to speak at. It's a fascinating episode. I know you will enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now part of C-Suite Radio. Hello, hello everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 158 for the week ending June 14, 2019, the Sweet Caroline edition. With Jay and myself together for a week in Boston, that's the city of champions for those keeping score at home, and I finally getting to go to Fenway Park to sing Sweet Caroline with the rest of the Chowderheads. Jay and I wanted to take a look at some of the top compliance stories for the week. So, Mr. Monitors, what did you think of the Red Sox game yesterday? Uh, it's been a while since I've seen a walk-off walk, but the uh, old hometown team loaded the bases, uh, walked to first base to load the bases, and then Mookie Betts walked in a run, putting the hometown team one game over 500. So, uh we had some uh, great hospitality, great seats, and it was uh, fun to share your first game at Fenway with you. Absolutely. So we had, uh, turns out, quite an interesting week. Uh, you want to just hit it? Let's do it. First up on the list, uh, why don't you tell us what Rick Messick has to say in the Global Anti-Corruption blog about who actually owns a bribe and why does it matter? So the um, – uh, Rick Messick is, is the co-founder of the Global Anti-Corruption blog, along with Matthew Stevenson, and they always have some great policy uh, blogs, and this is certainly one of them. The reason 
the question of who owns a bribe is important, Jay. It's because uh, trying to get the purloined money back to the country from which it was stolen. So basically, if a foreign government official uh, takes a bribe, that money actually should have gone to the country that he worked for. Um, Rick breaks it down to, unfortunately, common law countries and civil law countries. And by common law countries, I mean those that follow uh, English, American law, and others, which generally have a concept that someone who takes a bribe has actually, uh, it's being constructively held for the person uh, who the money was purloined from. So that recognizing that's a legal fiction, nevertheless, it makes it much easier to get a bribe. So if a foreign government official in Nigeria takes a bribe uh, under a common law analysis, he's actually holding that bribe in constructive trust for the country. Unfortunately, that's not so in civil countries, civil law countries, France, Germany, typically uh, countries that we were either conquered by Napoleon or follow the Napoleonic Code or Code Napoleon, if you're from Louisiana. So um, it's uh, very difficult. There is no legal fiction. There is no law which allows that. Some countries have transformed the, the rules so that a bribe paid uh, can be obtained, but if the money is converted or spent, uh, it's more generally more difficult. So who owns a bribe actually does matter, and as the global anti-corruption community moves towards uh, all forms of recovery of bribes, this question will become uh, even more important going forward. So what are the six hats of an AML compliance professional? So this uh, very interesting article comes to us uh, from Corporate Compliance Insights and our colleague, uh, John Aravant-Nitis, who is with Kroll, which is now part of Duff and Phelps. And John goes on to take a look at the six hats that an AML company professional must wear. And uh, these six distinct roles include, number one, being a risk manager. The AML officer must be able to lead this effort across multiple lines of business, geographies, and customer bases, balancing the need to impose order on the risk assessment and management process with recognition of different ways risk presents itself. Second way is being a business strategist giving the AML officer a seat at the table for business strategy discussions, allowing factors that contribute to that risk to be examined from the start rather than addressed after things have happened. Number three is being the functional advocate, lobbying against similarly compelling initiatives for the fiscal, human, and technological resources to fulfill this function's requirement. Number four is being a global thinker, the AML officer must have a thorough grasp of the changing positions of the players in this network. Number five, being a cultural standard setter. When AML breaches, it is usually because commitment has flagged somewhere in the organization. Indeed, that commitment cannot be assumed and allowed to easily wane. And the last part is being uh, an AML innovator. Doing this requires expanding, constantly expanding your toolkit striving for continuous improvement. So the AML officer's role must now undergo a similar similar, uh, similar evolution to that of other folks in the C-suite. So it's a pretty interesting article, and we uh, definitely link to it in the show notes. 
So the uh, we had some uh, folks leave the uh, Department of Justice, specifically in the FCPA Unit J. Um, first up, Ephraim Warnick, uh, who goes by Fry, who's had an extensive career at the DOJ uh, and has been with the uh, as assistant chief in the FCPA unit, is returning to uh, private practice, going to work at uh, Vincent Elkins. So while he's been a prosecutor, he's worked on both money laundering, FCPA cases, uh, as well as a plethora of other uh, fraud and bribery and corruption cases. And also we had Max, or Matt rather, Bowman, a former associate deputy attorney general who is rejoining King and Spalding in their white collar practice. He worked um, most interestingly, I thought, on the uh, revisions to the Yates memo, which Rod Rosenstein announced in November of 2018, and then the um, anti-piling on policy or the one pie policy, which coordinates government enforcement uh, efforts and is actually a framework for international enforcement efforts. So um, kudos to both uh, gentlemen for their sterling government service. Uh, thank you for uh, doing that and welcome back to the world of uh, private practice. Great. Uh, so next up, we also are dipping back into the font of CCI, a Corporate Compliance Insights. And this is uh, part of my ongoing series of monitors. And this week, we take a look at the positive impact an independent monitor can have in the context of doing a remediation at a company. And many of the benefits a company experiences in working with a monitor come from really engaging with the employee base and listening and dealing with their fears and concern. Um, when you're going through a situation like this, uh, people can be rather tense, and employees really welcome the opportunity to have their feelings and um, observations validated. The key impact from working with a monitor is that when a monitor listens, employees feel better explaining their perspective of what's happening internally in a company. If, a, if an employee's company has gotten into trouble, employees really respond to the fact that the pages are being turned and once again they can be proud of their organization. One of the means and the tools of the monitor is by talking to a truly independent outsider, this can be actually cathartic for employees. I mean, the entire process can help to reinstill a sense of pride in who they are, who they work for, and what the organization means. So um, it's, uh, you know, I'm biased. I think it's definitely worth the read. Uh, we'll leave it up to you, and we'll definitely link it in the show notes. Uh, what's up on your next article, Tom? So, Jay, there is a FCPA sting trial going on in Boston, of all places. We probably should have gone down and spent some time at the trial. But nevertheless, uh, I have to say the FBI doesn't come out looking uh, too good so far on this. Uh, and the reason is that uh, two wiretap phone calls of one of the defendant's conversations with an undercover agent have been uh lost, destroyed, or otherwise not available. And then uh, wiretap recordings billed as key evidence in the case were, for the most part, incomprehensible when they were listened to. The de defense brought motions to dismiss um, the uh, entire case based upon this. The judge denied those motions, uh, saying that the deficiencies were sloppiness and unforeseen technical issues. Nevertheless, the defense lawyers absolutely hammered the DOJ uh, and the FBI about this. 
uh, in both their opening statement and uh, witnesses, uh, as, you, as you would expect. So um, then the second point that the government, excuse me, the defense lawyers brought, not surprisingly, is that uh, the uh, case was really engineered by uh, the alleged bribery was engineered by the FBI and the Department of Justice, and that the agents were predisposed to think that the only way to successfully invest in Haiti was to commit a bribe. So they sought to manufacture a crime and criminals out of men who had not only clean records, but were actually playing fairly. So um, the uh, government, once again, in an FCPA case, is off to a kind of a rocky start, I think you would have to say. But this uh, the evidence of the, uh, the wiretaps, um, that really, uh, Jay, many, uh, many juries will sort of discount certainly what the lawyers say in opening and closing, and then um, uh, really rely on the hard uh, uh, evidence, whether that be documents or wiretap recordings. And if you've got wiretaps that have been destroyed and you're trying to claim that they said one thing and that they're really incomprehensible, uh, it's going to be it's really going to uh, negatively impact, I think, the jury. So uh, we'll keep an eye on this one. This is the first sting case that uh, has gone to trial since the infamous gun sting case where the government went, uh, I think, uh, 0 for 8 and then uh, just uh, dropped the rest of the cases going forward. So we'll keep an eye on this one and let you know. I think we actually met each other for the first time in D.C. at Compliance Week, which was happening at the same time the uh, short shark trials was going on. So uh, wow. something about you and I and uh, government investigations. I don't know. We'll have to look into that, those uh, points of next eye. Uh, next up, a fascinating exploration in Forbes magazine about – LaFaire Trump and the Trump Tower in Moscow. And uh, basically, the uh, two writers there, Dan Allen, take a look at three separate instances that the Trump organization uh, tried to get the Trump Tower uh, built in Moscow. Uh, although leading up in the elections to 2016, the president uh, vigorously denied having an interest in Russia and not wanting to build a skyscraper. Uh, this takes a look at Russian monsters, uh, people in the U.S., how Trump now licenses his name and doesn't really do much with um the actual building and construction of a project. And finally, the question that if you offer a penthouse apartment to the head of Russia, is that a violation of the FCPA? So a uh, fascinating article, definitely worth the time to uh, listen to, listen and learn from this uh, CD group of characters. So the uh, the next thing we had, Jay, is a very interesting development that actually may be more up your alley, but it came out of Italy, where there is a introduction of monitorships into the Italian system of corporate liability, and uh, recognizing that Italy is a civil law country uh, based on uh, Code Napoleon that we talked a lot, little bit earlier about. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the Italian government. And legislature are have established a, um, a mechanism by which uh, companies can have a what they call a corrective model of uh, 
compliance uh, supersede uh, the legal uh, requirement for liability and criminal liability. It's a long-winded way of saying monitor ships have come to uh, Italy. Uh, this was reported in uh, New York University's Compliance and Enforcement Journal in an excellent article. So um, the monitor ship model, I think, is really finding favor, and it can be a powerful tool for both law enforcement and corporations. So uh, interesting to see this uh, introduced in Italy and uh, going to see where it may go forward. So, uh, Tom, I need you to go back to back and um – you ask Carrie, you think you were having a bad day? Matt Kelly, our colleague from Radical Compliance, looks at an assassination attempt on CAE in South Africa. What's that one about? Yeah, so this is just crazy, and it's even crazier than your introduction. So, uh, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the chief audit executive of the South African Broadcasting Company, uh, there was an assassination attempt on him over the weekend. But that's not my favorite part, Jay. My favorite part is. Not only was there an assassination attempt, but the uh, head of uh, the chief audit executive, he returned fire. He was carrying concealed carry, and then he opened fire and wounded one of his attempted assassins. So outside the great state of Texas, I'm not sure you would have that uh, occur, but perhaps in Florida. But um, uh, the uh, uh, chief audit executive, one Thami Zika O.D., uh, was not hit, returned fire, injured one of the shooters. The police have taken one into custody. So um, I don't think we have can point to any other instances where there has been an assassination attempt of a chief audit executive here in the United States. So uh, uh, tough duty uh, for the audit guys in South Africa. So the next story um, we have is from – Matthew Stevenson's Global Anti-Corruption blog, which always has some interesting stuff. This article comes to us by Jonathan Eubank, and it's all about ghost money uh, assessing the risk of state-sponsored bribery. So the article talks out and saying back in 2014, the venerable New York Times reported that the Central Intelligence Agency had been paying the office of then-president of Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai, tens of millions of dollars in cash for more than a decade. Afghanistan termed these payments, quote, ghost money, unquote, unquote, sorry, a convenient term that they used throughout the article that some might simply call it bribery, but this is the case of the practice of engaging in state-sponsored bribery in the interest of national security. So um, setting aside the question of whether or not ghost money itself presents the same concerns of regular bribery, uh, the author, Jonathan Eubank, takes a look at three points. The first one is ghost money payments are likely to be recycled into other forms of corruption. The New York Times described U.S. payments to the Afghanistan president as going largely in the playing off of warlords and politicians. Ghost money likely adds to the pot of resources available to those at the top and in doing so can quickly transform the ordinary into ordinary private corruption. Second use of ghost money undermines the anti-corruption messaging and personal credibility of U.S. diplomats and other advocates of anti-corruption reforms. Third, ghost money payments can weaken the enforcement of laws against corporate bribery, such as our favorite FCPA. 
So basically, uh, ghost money has collateral consequences for our national interest, for our uh, reputation, and these consequences should be weighed uh, carefully against national security interests and executives to determine the balance that should be able to withstand some form of independent review. So really interesting article, and we link to it in the show notes. So, Jay, uh, I don't know if you were able to listen to it, but I had a fascinating three-part uh, podcast series on my podcast, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock High, a podcast on business leadership that I uh, co-host with Richard Lummis this week. We took a look at leadership lessons from Harry Truman, Douglas MacArthur, and most interestingly, MacArthur's sacking of, uh, excuse me, Truman's sacking of MacArthur uh, during the Korean War. So those went up this week. I've linked to them in the show notes. Um uh, as well. Uh, and uh, today, uh, the first of a two-part Everything Compliance podcast went up where uh, we have the entire uh, Everything Compliance gang discussing uh, the Trump administration and compliance for the first six months of 2019. The first uh, part one has Mike Volkoff, <clears throat> Matt Kelly, and Sarah Haddon. Uh, in two weeks, we'll have a podcast with uh, uh, yourself, Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen, uh, Jonathan Armstrong, Mr. Cordery, and myself, the Compliance Evangelist. So we're actually going to have six commentators. We've got extensive uh, notes uh, in the show notes and links to additional resources for people to read. So I know it'll be a fascinating review. <clears throat> this uh, series that we do for Everything Compliance, where we review at periodic intervals, quarterly, half-year, and annual reviews of the Trump administration around compliance, are some of the most popular Everything Compliance podcasts. So uh, check it out. I know that um, it'll be on the mind of compliance professionals. We actually had uh, quite a bit going on this year. And as a special added benefit, we have the first double rant ever in Everything Compliance, as Matt Kelly uh, ranted during his uh, primary session. And then, of course, he had his uh, separate rant at the end. So kudos to Matt for a rant squared. So uh, we are in Boston today because uh, Affiliated Monitors is putting together a local ethics and compliance roundtable. Um, we'll be doing it this afternoon in Boston. And uh, we got a nice uh, collection of compliance officers uh, anti-corruption professionals and folks who are just uh, generally care about the stuff that Tom and I discuss week in and week out and this week in FCPA. So uh, I'm sure we'll have some uh, interesting uh, anecdotes to share with you on next week's podcast. And um, I think, Tom, any, uh, any traveling you have coming up? I know it's uh, the summer holidays, but is there anything uh, uh, conference-wise that should uh, put on the radar? So the last week of uh, – actually, uh, that's not true. So I have three conferences coming up. Uh, the first is the ACFE National Conference. That is in Austin. Unfortunately, that event is sold out. Um, but I believe that's the 23rd to the 25th, at least for me. Uh, the second event, though, Jay, is if you're in the Miami area, uh, I would love for you to attend the uh, Managing Compliance Across Borders uh, conference that I am speaking at. It's a programming 
program that's put on jointly by the Miami University School of Law and the University of Gallen in Switzerland Executive School Program. It's going to be a fascinating look at a lot of cross-border issues. I'm giving a keynote, uh, so I'm very excited about that. And then finally, for those of you who are most interested in um, going to France, uh, I am speaking at a conference in Paris the first week of July. We're going to link, uh, have information on that uh, as well. So if in your, if you are in Europe and uh, would like to uh, come to a, a, a excellent uh, compliance event, I'll be speaking uh, there on the third and fourth of July as well. So uh, lots coming up, uh, even in this uh, summer holiday season. Jay, uh, with that, you want to take us home? Sure. So. On behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 158, for the week ending June 14th, 2019, the Sweet Caroline edition. Uh, thanks for listening to our travails and adventures in Boston, and we'll be back next week to talk about everything that's fit to discuss on this week in the FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week for another wrap-up of some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. Also, check out today's posting on everything compliance. I know you will enjoy. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.